On a grey November day, we came to the Isle of Skye for the Shawl Festival of Small Halls, when some of Scotland's most amazing traditional musicians come together in a kind of folk supergroup to tour around the little community halls and venues on this amazing island. You might have heard the episode we recorded with Rachel Newton, the harpist, fiddle player, viola player, singer, a bearer of the Scottish tradition, walking at the fairy pools on the Isle of Skye. But while we were here with all these extraordinary musicians, we thought we'd tell you the stories of two other people who'd been involved in this small halls festival. And this bonus episode is about Sue R. Lee, who is a cellist who doesn't come from the normal folk tradition background. She's a classically trained cellist, but she's played a huge role in Scottish traditional music over the last 10 years. And we sat down to talk about her life and her musical journey. Picture the scene. I am sitting on a rock on the Isle of Skye, looking at a river cascading down the hill towards me, and the mountains have snow on them just above it, and behind me the sun has just come out on another range of hills. And sitting on an adjacent rock, I have the wonderful <laughs> Sue R. Lee with her cello, which is brilliant. Thank you very much for gracing the landscape with us today. A small ma. <laughs> You've just been for a run up there, haven't you? I, yeah, I took a little run this morning. Since it's the What's first it like over the, over the brow of that hill? It's incredible. Literally, as soon as you come over this little spur, you lose the sound of traffic, you lose the sense of anybody else around. It's absolutely wonderful. Have you been to Sky a lot? I've been coming to Sky for the last 25 years or so, on and off. I've done various tours. I think the first time I came was really with um, the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, who I play with. And we've been doing, uh, you know, small Highlands and Islands tours, and that's always during the summer. And Sky used to be every year. We used to come every year, and it's been less over the past few years. We have to share around all the locations. And so what is a nice, classically trained musician like you doing with all these rumbunctuous <laughs> folkies <laughs> on this tour? <laughs> Well, it's actually all down to Mary Lewis. <laughs> oh, right, Mary Lewis, who organises the yes, Small Halls Festival. Exactly, the artist director. She approached me last Cultivate Connections with the idea that I could come on this Small Halls tour. And she mentioned the names of the people that were coming. And I know them all. They're all good friends. And I have been playing with many of them over the years. You know, Duncan, Chisholm, Innes, Watson, Donald Shaw. Donald Shaw. I mean, like, Jarlath, everyone I've, I've played with over the years, but in fact, just the idea of 
going around all the small halls and, and putting together a programme. And I kind of think of all the folkies as being able to just sit there, jam away, never have to look at a chart, never barely having to discuss what they're going to play next, and then them all just, you know, jumping in. And that's re that terrified me. It absolutely terrified me. She said, listen, think about it gave me the brochure of last year and asked me to think about it and she nudged me probably once a month for about three months <laughs> <laughs> and then he said yes and I finally just but thought, I think it's in, yes. in the spirit of your character really because reading about you you're somebody who doesn't really see boundaries between different kinds of music it's true it's nice not to be able to I, I feel the boundaries often in, internally but I don't want to make them a reality will you play a little music for us now sure yes have you got any sort of of, of of the music that you're playing on this tour that you could give us um, i noticed well, you played the Strathspey the other night i did i played a Strathspey for the first i learned it yeah i learned that and well because we have two different iterations we have two quartets and the first quartet i've been playing with is with donald shaw duncan and innes and the second will be with um hamish uh, lauren and megan so this, uh, in the second one, I will be playing actually some classical music. Ah. They don't know that with a folky accompaniment. Right. <laughs> so, oh, wonderful. You're going to so play a bit of that I, for us. I could do, I can, I can also do the Strathspey. See, what, what would you prefer? Well, why don't you give us the Strathspey now and then the bit okay, of bark sure. afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Let me get out of the way. Let, yeah. let me move out of the way. John Stephen of Chance Inn. That's a perfect piece to play right here. I want to learn about your life and what sort of a family you come from. Are you from a musical family? Half. <laughs> my, my, parent, my father's not really musical at all. My mother is musical but doesn't play as such, although she plays a Korean uh, horizontal harp called a kayagum. But I do have two very musical sisters who are professional violinists. One lives in Los Angeles and one lives in Houston. So how did the music come into your lives? Was it something you started doing very early? Yes, at school. They offered violin lessons. I have to say, I absolutely hated it. I hated everything about it. Like, I hated the sound that I made. It was just really squeaky. And I'd heard, I'd heard cello on the radio. Um, I didn't have a cello for the first couple of months of playing, and I just borrowed it every Saturday. I think that there's something about being denied something, like an instrument, to make you really want it at that age. So not only did I love it, but I w didn't have an instrument, and I remember being able to take home the cello at the half-term holiday because nobody at that school was um, using it. And it was huge. It was like a half-size, and I was about three, three foot five. And so it's this big monster of a thing, but I literally did not stop playing it for like six hours. So you just fell in love with it? Absolutely. What totally. is it about the instrument that you love? Um, it is, it's kind of everything. It's like the whole, it's like 
embracing a whole body of sound. It, you can really feel the vibrations. Um, like when I'm doing education work, I do get kids to come and touch the instrument while you play because actually you, can, you totally do feel it. Uh, plus there's something incredibly natural about it, not unlike the violin. For me, the cello is all about you're gravity. You're embracing it yeah, as we you're, speak. Yeah, you're, and, you're hugging it. Yes, and it's just gravity helps. So everything is nat just feels very natural. Plus, the sound is like the human voice. It sings, I mean, doesn't it? It's the range. The actu it's actually physically the range sits in the human voice range, like right down to the. You will have singers that can reach the bottom, and some singers that can really reach the top. So it really sits in that register and. Oh, that, that I, honestly, I could wax lyrical about the cello forever because it, you can play melody, you can play harmony, you can play bass. You know, so it, there's a lot of um, possibility, and yeah, I, I absolutely love it. And would you play us a little bit of Bach? I can do that for you too. Oh my goodness, look at this! The humidity is making the bow go down. <laughs> and see that it's already changed. Thank you. 
That was astonishing. Have you played outside before? Uh, yes, I would say many times. And um, under what circumstances? Oh, so many different ones. Um, I guess, well, the most profound was actually played that piece at the very top of Ben Nevis. Ah, and I think there's a story behind this, which is a story about your husband. Indeed, it? late husband. Yes, t tell, us about, tell us about him, first of all, how you met. Um, well, um, oh goodness, so what, he, was, he was walking the Camino de Santiago. A very famous pilgrimage in Spain. It is. The end point is Santiago de Compostela, which is in the north of Spain, northwest of Spain in Galicia. You start in France and you walk across the Pyrenees and you walk across the, whole, the, the top of Spain and it's 500 miles, essentially. So he was walking that and was writing a blog and we were writing to each other during that period. I hadn't met him. He had written his blog because he was raising money for a cancer charity, well, two cancer charities. And he'd been, had he been diagnosed he with had, cancer at that yeah, time? In fact, he had, he had a, a very rare form of a malignant melanoma in his thumb. And at the point where he walked the Camino, he had just had the, his whole thumb amputated. So it was a sort of recovery and that, that was in the hope that that would be the end of the, the cancer. And uh, unfortunately that was not the case. It, it, it actually had spread into his central nervous system. So, um, And his name was? Gordon Davidson. He was a Royal Marine officer in the early days, then became a you know commercial pilot. But he was also a passionate musician. He played piano very well until he had his thumb chopped off. <laughs> Uh, and then violin, fiddle, and clarinet. In fact, this is a funny fact, he was in the same music class as Donald Shaw because they grew up in Oven. They were amazing. in the same year, yeah. So the music was a shared interest. Absolute shared love, And yeah. you obviously fell in love with each other. Yeah, I think I'd fallen in love before I even met him, so... And so how long after that first meeting was it before you got married? It was quite shortly after, I'd say, maybe nine months something like that yeah knowing that he had an illness that would you know wasn't likely to have a, a cure um, was desperately sad but I couldn't allow myself to think like that it's, there's really no choice when you're in love you know you're in it because you want it so I wanted in some ways everything about it and you just take it on because you have to so how long did you have together as a married couple only, let me think, it was probably only a little more than six months. Right. Yeah, very short. Now, you mentioned that you played that piece of bark yeah. at the top of Ben Nevis. Yes. Was that part of your process of grieving, part of your process of remembering your husband? Oh, you know, there's a... The reason... Oh, it sort of stems back... It goes back to the Camino, really. The piece itself was the very first piece in the first week we met that I played to him. He, he always wanted to hear that. If he felt low, I played it to him in the hospice. You know, he always wanted to hear that. And, and actually, on the Camino, he, he did his Camino. He raised £17,477 for the cancer charities, which is no mean feat. And when he was dying, I said to him, I am going to do this. I am definitely going to do this, and I am going to beat that figure. And so, so after his death, you went on the Camino? Yes. But you meet some tremendous people along the way. And one of the very special men I met, he was very thoughtful, like very deep thinker. I had asked him, you know, 
whether he'd been walking in Scotland, he was a climber. We talked about Ben Nevis, obviously the highest mountain in Great Britain. And I had wanted to climb that at the end of the West Highland Way. And I told him that when I was a teenager, I did the West Highland Way, dragged some friends along. Oh my goodness, we spent the last two days of the West Highland Way absolutely soaking wet. Like we couldn't even put our tent up. The wind, it was just miserable. Proper Scottish rain. Proper. And they were miserable. So I actually got on straight back on the train with them to sort of cheer them up a bit. And then with really very little money left, I thought, well, actually, I'm, I've made a big mistake. I really still want to do this. So I went across London, got on a bus, overnight bus, straight back up. I remember walking up Ben Nevis and I was walking as if I was a zombie. And I must have got about two thirds of the way up before I just thought, I can't do this anymore. And I just turned around and came back. And it always felt like a bit of a failure to me. And so I, I'd, I'd recounted this story to, on the Camino to this, this East German deep thinker. And I'd also recounted the story of, in South America, there was a girl who played the bandoneon who had written Gordon a piece dedicated it to him for me to play for solo cello and uh, she'd even got it recorded in Buenos Aires and had sent it to Gordon and it arrived it literally arrived like five six days after he died so I was gutted about that like really he never heard it and I had sworn that I would play that music or use that music somewhere that was meaningful so I was on the walk talking about this piece and what was I going to do with this piece and on the final day as a parting comment he said to me you know what I'd like you to think about something and he said I think I think you should go up to Ben Nevis I think you should take your cello and I think you should play your piece to him at the top and as soon as he said the words everything it's like everything just fell into place I just thought it all makes total sense I have to do it May 11th we went up. There was still snow on the hills. So were you walking through the snow with your cello? Yeah, the last two hours were absolutely like knee-deep in snow. It's a bit of a struggle, but you're not thinking of it as a struggle. You're basically, you're on a mission. It doesn't matter, you're doing it anyway. So you so, got to the top yeah. and you put down your cello case in the snow. And as I approached the summit, I was desperately panicked because there were so many people. Didn't want all these people there, really didn't want them. It was like a very private thing. As soon as I arrived there, the most magical thing happened. It started to snow. It properly started to snow. As if by magic, literally everyone just, the whole thing, everything just dissipated, everyone left. And it was magical, because there's also this magical kind of silence that comes with snow. I don't, the sound changes, it's really um, very, yeah, very grounding somehow. As the snow kind of started to ease, uh, I thought, right, this is it, I'm just going to go for it, and started playing. Mm -hmm. 
literally, as soon as I started playing, the sun came out. So let's turn back to folk music and talk about how you got involved in the folk scene because you've played with quite a lot of these musicians in, in, in a number of different ways, haven't you? Yes. Uh, I feel very lucky for all, I mean, literally for it all. But if I, if I really think about where it stemmed from, I think it really was from the band Mr McFall's Chamber, which we started in 1996 with four members of the SEO. It was Robert McFall's idea. He had two sons, or has two sons, two of his sons, who were working in the nightclubs of the Cowgate. And there was one particular club called Transporter Rooms that we had our first outing and we just thought it'd be great to put some, a string quartet playing avant-garde classical music at two o'clock in the morning. In a nightclub? Yeah, yeah. Wow, uh, how did it go down? It went down like a, an absolute treat because basically... People were dancing. Can you imagine people dancing to Webern, uh, Shostakovich? And I mean, it was just mental. Absolutely loving it. And we loved it too, because it felt completely different to do that, you know, to. Liberating, perhaps? Absolutely. And playing to an audience that we never play to. I mean, um, you know, with fairness, a lot of our audiences are uh, definitely not of the teenage 20s variety. The dancing persuasion. No. So. Um, <laughs> It really was exceptional, and and then it moved from there to a slightly underground venue of the Bongo Club, which was it, the Bongo Club in back in the day in the nineties was it was a condemned building at the back of Waverley Station. The folky element of it, uh, for the last ten years or so, we've been playing with well Distill, which is Hands Up for Trad, run by Dave Francis and Simon Toomey, invited Mr. McFall's Chamber to play as the resident group for basically mostly folk musicians to compose and to try out wonderful, you know, compositions for string quartet, string quintet. And we'd workshop them all and then perform them at the end of the week and it was a showcase week. And so we've met some wonderful players through that. Has it changed the way you play? Because, you know, you come from a classically trained background yeah. and you're used to having a score in front of you yes. or learning from a score, whereas some of these people are used to making it up as they go along Absolutely. and playing in a freer yeah. and more liberated way, I suppose you might say. Has it changed your sense of freedom? And Absolutely. Of course, it's been gradual and with some leaps and bounds. You, you basically have to hurl yourself into the unknown and it's kind of the only way. You've just got to hurl yourself, Throw yourself in. in yeah. there, like you're doing here at the small hall. A little bit, yes. In fact, a lot. <laughs> you're <laughs> learning a lot of new repertoire, presumably. Yeah. Exactly. learning a lot of new things that you have to do yes. being more spontaneous perhaps yes. than sometimes yes. Yeah. yes you look as though you're loving it though I am absolutely loving it and I feel so lucky to be amongst such brilliant musicians uh, while I'm kind of just learning the ropes you know that sort of feeling it's, it's really it's really fun for me
Now, you have brought another instrument with you yes. out here to the rock, <laughs> as well as the cello, and it's in a red case down there. Yes. What have you got in the case? Well, it's my secret weapon. Oh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> because you know what? So almost so annoying about all these amazing musicians is they not only it's just amazing at what they do they're amazing at several things it's they not play just lots one. of instruments they play lots of instruments they either so you you, you need another so string to your like, bow I'm if you might go let this, saying so i'm not gonna let this go so easily so i have yeah my little secret weapon i'm just gonna put my put cello the cello away, away. yeah yeah <laughs> it really is a weapon it's a saw <laughs> You've got, an, you've got an actual saw out of that red case. Yeah. I mean, is it just a normal saw that you might buy in a do-it-yourself shop? Well, it's made by a regular com uh, saw company called Sandvig. Uh, but it is made as a musical saw because essentially it's maybe 50% longer than the average useful saw. And, but I have, I have actually cut wood with this, this very saw. Um, I worked with a, a, a Belgian dance company called Rexless Sleepers and we did a project where we basically cut the legs off our own chairs and, and then I played. And then played music uh, yeah. with the saw. Yeah, so I, I did use it for that and then, yeah. Then Is it difficult it. To, to play? I mean, did you have to work not hard really. to learn it? No, no, I'm not. I learned to play it on, on Applecross Beach, sitting on a rock. <laughs> well, it's perfect here. You it's should perfect, play. Yeah. And also, you've got a perfect piece of music for us. What are you going to yes, play? Yes, well, we're, we're here on the island of Skye, so I am... Long ago days, there was, we didn't have a bridge, so this is uh, the ode to that. <laughs> That was amazing. You're actually playing the saw with your cello bow. Well, I've, I've, I've actually played playing it with a bass bow. One, one, one because it's shorter and one it can live in the case with the cello. So. <laughs> it's been amazing. So, Ali, thank you very much indeed oh, for sharing Matthew. time with us on Sky. Yeah. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a joy for me.
Sue R. Lee on the Isle of Skye. There are more episodes coming soon in season five of Folk on Foot. In the meantime, why not go back through the back catalogue and enjoy all the glories of our previous episodes with those amazing artists in those spectacular landscapes. And if you feel like making a donation to help us make more episodes, just go to the Support Us button on the website at folkonfoot.com and follow the simple instructions. We love making the podcast. We hope you love listening to it.